it is my pleasure to welcome back Spec as the presenting sponsor of Fraudology this quarter. Stay tuned for more information and updates on their product capabilities, or click the link in the episode description to request your personal demo of Spec's TrustCloud platform. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. One of the big reasons why I am such a proponent of information sharing and really cross-pollination of information across fraud fighters, whether you're in e-commerce or you work for a marketplace or a fintech or a bank or financial institution, and even zooming down, right? If we're looking at just e-commerce, there's so many different verticals that experience different types of fraud, different tactics of fraud at different times. So some will be on the front lines of getting those most innovative attacks that no one else has really seen before. So they are in real time having to identify and figure out what's happening on our system. How are we getting taken advantage of? What's the exploit? Where's the risk? Without a playbook, without being able to talk to peers and say, hey, have you seen this before? What are you doing about it? Or maybe they do, but they're just, there's a much smaller group. That topic is certainly not being talked about at conferences yet. And then even more, they really need to go to look for the root cause and figure out how do we identify this? This is completely new that no one else has seen yet. And that's a big reason why it's so important to share information. And then similarly to that, all companies and all entities and fraud teams are inventing the wheel in a way from a lot of things from operation perspective or process or just setting up a team. So it's always so good to learn from each other in so many different ways. But one of the things I've learned in the last decade or so that I've been supporting primarily e-commerce and marketplace merchants is that there are a couple of verticals that often are the ones that are seeing that on the front line. And then they're there to share that information with their peers before those other verticals will see that. I saw that very perfectly play out with account takeover. First, some of the gaming consoles were seeing this trend and figuring it out, but then very quickly travel for airlines and hotels and online travel agencies and event ticketing, like concert tickets and sporting event tickets. We're also seeing that first. And there's a reason why I love to learn from people in event ticketing. I've had people who used to work at StubHub, people who've worked for Ticketmaster on the podcast before because they're often on the front line and a little bit different than the gaming consoles that might have a $20 game that someone's purchasing or in-app purchases for $5, $10, etc. Event tickets are very expensive. And so... Those are often large dollar losses. And because the value of an event ticket, whether it's for a concert or a festival or a sporting event, those can go up in value 10 times before the event even happens on the resale market. And so there's just so many risks and nuances with that that you can learn a lot from anyone who's been on the front lines of ticketing. And that's one of the reasons why I am excited to have Sean Kelly be my guest on today's podcast episode. Sean has been at CE for a little over seven years. His most recent position was Director of Payment and Risk Operations. I've Sean and I were realizing... We've known each other since I think we decided it was 2016, which feels like it wasn't that long ago. But then we realized, 
oh, that was about seven years ago. I guess that's right around when you started at SeatGeek, huh? <laughs> and Sean just recently took a bit of a sabbatical from working full time after all that he's done. And he'll share a lot of what he did and you'll understand why he's taken a bit of a break, but I don't think it'll be for long. He's already working on a few things and working with a few companies on things. So it'll be fun. And towards the end, he'll talk about what he's working on. But I wanted to have Sean on to talk a little bit about the nuances of ticketing, about a lot of the things he learned. And especially because he was the one that built the entire fraud strategy first for SeatGeek, as well as payment. He and I geek out a little bit about why we both feel passionately that there should be more people who are, I shouldn't say cross-trained, but who are well-versed in both payments and fraud. They really should go hand in hand. And just because if your company is one that maybe doesn't understand or doesn't value the importance of having at least one person, if not a team, depending on the size of your company, owning payments, that might be a way that you can expand your career and help with your personal development. And we talk about that a little bit in this episode too. And so before we get to hear from Sean, I wanted to fill in a few blanks. So I realized that in our conversation, we were using words and terms that we both know that may not be as as universal to anyone who is outside of the event ticketing space. So first, I wanted to share just a tiny bit about who SeatGeek is. If you're not familiar, they are primarily domestic, so U.S.-based, and they provide event tickets. They are one of the few companies that are considered both a primary ticket provider as well as secondary. So they started out on the secondary market and he'll talk a little bit about that, but just they then entered the primary market to provide a little more competition in the space in the U.S. And as I said, I've had people on this podcast from Step Up, from Ticketmaster, now SeatGeek. I firmly believe that we can all be friends, but I know there's there's competition out there. That's not my worry. I am in fraud in fraud. We're not competitors. We should all be learning together. So a primary event ticketing company is one that owns the inventory. Oftentimes they have an exclusive contract with the specific venue, you know, an arena or a concert hall or something like that. They're the ones who are issuing the ticket first. They're the ones who can cancel that ticket and return it back to stock. They're the ones. There's a lot of nuances there. And he'll talk a bit about that, but I just want to dive in a little bit before we get going. Just like I said, to fill in a couple of blanks. So they're the ones that have the relationship with the, oftentimes it's the venue itself or a specific sports team or a festival or something like that. There really are only on the big scale for the big events and the big venues, really only three primary ticketing companies in the U.S. There are definitely a couple others that might work with some of the smaller venues or playhouses or county fairs, things like that. And all of them are important. It's just good to know they're going to have different fraud issues and different risk profiles than secondary. Secondary is more like the resale market. So they don't own the inventory. Now, there are some relationships that primary ticketing companies have with secondaries markets where some might be able to have direct visibility, but that's getting way into the weeds. But in SeatGeek's case, because they do have a primary relationship with some venues and arenas and sports teams, they if those tickets are sold on the secondary market, then they will have some visibility. But if one of their tickets from the primary market is sold on a different secondary market, oftentimes that secondary market has no 
insight to know, does this ticket even really exist? It <laughs> Has it been printed off three times and sold three different times? How do, all those things, there's so many risks there. And as he'll share, there's a lot more different fraud risks on the secondary market than there are on the primary market, but they're all very, all very nuanced. And then the additional issue that he'll talk about that I think is really important is it's not the same as other companies that might sell the same item all the time. You can have a country singer have a medium-sized concert go for sale or be on the secondary market versus a rapper or a music group that is more skewed to younger people who might be using their parents' card or something like that. So there's just so many nuances there. And then the last one is the last thing I wanted to fill in the blank was brokers. Brokers are a touchy subject, but if I'm actually using a different term, they really are just resellers. So a lot of brands in retail will often experience resellers. Oftentimes those resellers are using their own card. In retail, the resellers you'll see a lot of times are shipping those brand name items to other countries where they're not as accessible. That brand isn't as accessible in that other country. And so they're buying it in the US and they're shipping it over, but they're buying in bulk, right? So oftentimes companies will have policies around how many time, how many items you can buy. And brokers in the ticketing world are really just resellers. However, there has been quite a business built around them. And there's also some contention around brokers with everyday people who want to go to concerts because brokers are getting tickets oftentimes in bulk, often from the primary ticket provider, which means that's the ticket price. And so if they're able to get all these tickets at a certain price and then resell them on the secondary market, and especially for those very big brand, very big names in music and sports or large sports tournaments, brokers know that they're, they often can resell those tickets for a lot. And so sometimes they will deploy bots. However, as Sean will talk about, that's not always the case, but I think that Brokers and bots are often synonymous when consumers are talking about buying event tickets. So they'll say, oh, all the bots bought the regular tickets. So if I want to go to this concert, I have to pay two or three times more than that broker did. But actually, as bot technology increases and gets better as far as on the bot side, not necessarily, well, on the bot detection side as well, but as bot detection gets better and as some states have rules against bots, there are more and more brokers finding other ways to get a lot of tickets all at once. And it's a complicated decision for every primary ticketing company, as well as sometimes it's the venue or the the musician or the band that makes the rule and says, hey, I'm good with vendor or with brokers, or can we put in other things in place to try to make sure that more of my fans can get these tickets? But they're also a necessary evil in a way. Not that I'm saying that they're completely evil, but just from a consumer perspective, because sometimes they'll brokers will buy tickets in advance that other people wouldn't. And then they'll just hope that, well, you know, in smaller towns or for smaller musicians, that people will want to buy them eventually when it gets closer to the tour date. But because those brokers bought the tickets in advance, now that band can go on tour. So there's just so many complexities in event ticketing that I'd imagine if you haven't been in this industry, you haven't thought about. And that's why I had been wanting Sean to come on for a while uh, and be able to talk about that in a unique way because he's essentially built the fraud programs and the technology response and all that, as well as the payment side for both secondary and primary sides as they were getting big and as they were as they were happening. You've got to 
put out a lot of fires and you're looking at today's fires, but then you're also thinking about how are we going to identify these in a better way at scale down the line? And what else is going to come down the line? So those are the few terms that I just wanted to share with you guys at the top so that you feel like, oh, okay, I can totally keep up with this conversation. I made a note for myself throughout. I didn't want to interrupt any of the good things he was saying about the lessons he's learned or the nuances and the complexity and the some of the crazy things they had to figure out to say, oh, hold up, let me talk about what this is. I thought I'd just do it at the beginning. All right, guys, I'm really looking forward to you hearing this episode. I always enjoy talking with fellow fraud fighters. That's why I'm so grateful for Fraudology and grateful for the sponsors that that help me be able to provide so much content through Fraudology and also to the people who take time out of their busy day to share some of their experiences. And with that, I'm going to let you listen in on my conversation with Sean Kelly. I know you're going to enjoy it. I am here with Sean Kelly, and Sean and I have known each other for several years, and I'm grateful that he gets to join me on Fraudology today. As of just a couple weeks ago, he's now the former Director of Payment and Risk Operations for SeatGeek, and I know that it's an interesting transition when you've been at the same place for a long time, trying to get used to that former part. But Sean, I'll always still think of you at SeatGeek, obviously, but thank you so much for joining me on Fraudology. Absolutely. Yeah, my I'm excited to be here. As with a lot of my guests, like we've talked about it for a long time and then we just made it happen (laughs) finally. And I'm grateful for that. Several years now, I think. So I know I just own the fact that now I have great intentions, but the execution, it happens eventually. (laughs) (laughs) But you were also quite busy until recently too. And not that you're not busy now, but a different kind of busy. Yes, for sure. So you'd love to start off in the same place that I start off with everyone, because to at least so far, none of us grew up thinking I'm going to be a fraud fighter online because there wasn't even really websites yep. when we grew up. Yeah. Um, I've often wondered, are kids going to, is there right. going to be a shift there? Because that yeah. didn't really used to be a thing and now is, and now people are being exposed to it. So maybe there's a future generation that will want to be. But I hope so. Yeah. I haven't yet met them. Every once in a while, I'll get an email from someone who's in university who will ask me, hey, how do I get in? And I'm like, you get a job. There's no training, right? It's all OJT. But yeah. So how did you accidentally fall into this crazy world of online fraud fighting? Yeah. So it all started when I started at SeatGeek, which was about seven and a half years ago. I had a background, my degrees in communications, most of my time Previously, had been spent in design. I took a few years out of tech and renovated old houses and had a company doing that for a while and missed tech too much. So got back in, had a printing business. So all these kind of weird things. Hmm. I My previous role before SeatGeek, I was in consulting and a bit of marketing. So like all these varied pieces. And I'd known about SeatGeek for a long time. One of the early engineers there was a really good friend of mine from high school, and he was always trying to get me to join them, but it would have required moving to New York, and I Mm. didn't desire to live in New York. And so it was always a few times a year we would check in, and he's like, oh, you got to come join us. I'm like, they hire a remote? No. Yeah. All right, cool. Especially back then, right? Seven years ago? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that just went on for a while, and I ended up moving out to the West Coast from Chicago the Chicago area and I'm in Portland and I was had wrapped up that consulting and marketing role and 
was looking for what's next and came across a job posting for SeatGeek out in Portland. And I was Hmm. like, wait, what? Really? (laughs) However, it was entry level customer support into some semblance of a career at that point, not not anything specific as it were, but but knew the company. And so it's like, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And Hmm. I think it's a company worth getting in with. And so I ended up getting hired and started on the customer support team about two months into that two, yeah, about two months into that, I got a message from our CEO, Jack, who said, Hey, I can tell that you have some experience and have done something in tech before you're opening GitHub issues and like picking on these noticing these details and a little bit different than what we see normally from our customer support team. Hmm. And he said, would you want to do a special project? I was like, okay, cool. Sure. Yes. (laughs) And that turned into moving over to the product team and doing QA, which enjoyed, had all the devices, trying to break things and figure out when bugs are reported, is this true? Is it just user error? How can we improve, et cetera? And enjoyed that. A month or two into that, we had just launched our B2B or our C2C marketplace. So fans for the first time Mm. through our site, similar to what StubHub has been doing for a long time. And so with that launch, we started having a totally different level and kind of fraud than we had ever had. Mm. We had barely started into being merchant of record on anything. And so we didn't have any kind of trust and safety or fraud team or risk team or anything. And so fraud starts happening. I'm just naturally like very curious. I want to know how things work as is evidence throughout all of my varied things. It's that very logical, break things down, understand how it works, zoom out, approach this. And so same thing there where curious, I'm hearing from still having a foot in the customer support realm there, all these reports of fraud and like what's happening. Hmm. And then also on the product side, you know, elsewhere and nobody owned it. And one thing led to another and that kind of started that ball rolling. We ended up hiring a director over me from Etsy at that point to come in and really help build out a trust and safety team and develop an approach to risk. And so it was incredible to get to be at the formative stages, starting from scratch at a very tech forward, very software people oriented company to how do we approach this? How do we think about this? And coming into that without a background in fraud and to be able to just problem solve it from the beginning was pretty awesome. And so getting to build that first generation of tooling and then yeah, through the years that just evolved, I moved over to the payment side at SeatGeek for a few years and build out a payments platform. And then about th- almost three years ago, had the opportunity to step over both of the payments and risk teams and take that forward. And yeah, so all over the place, but but it was, yeah, it was awesome and to, to get to go through that growth and that initial seven-ish years ago, building the initial tooling and how we think about this and how we approach mm-hmm. this and the vendors that are out there and what we build for that. And then probably about five years later to tear that all down, going through COVID was a great opportunity to rethink everything. And we did. So tore down all of that tooling that I'd helped build in the early days there and rebuild it from scratch. Trying to, again, do that. Here's what we know now. Let's zoom out. How can we approach this? What's the best way to deal with this? As I will probably talk more about the live events industry and ticketing is a very interesting space when it comes to fraud. Some a lot of themes in common with other sectors and segments, but some very unique challenges with ticketing and live events specifically and how to approach those and what kind of tooling works best. Sometimes rules work best. Sometimes machine learning works best in that context. How do you do that? What does that look like? So, yeah. 
that's my story. Lots, lots of learning lessons. And I can absolutely relate to just that thrill, but also the chaos of starting yeah. a department from scratch. And at the same time that you're trying to understand and zoom out and then zoom in and all of that, there's still things happening. So you're one yeah. foot on the future and another foot in right now and all of that. And I do think in knowing as many fraud fighters as I do, that there are so many common through lines for those of us, yeah. regardless of where we started from or what we thought we'd be when we grew up, <laughs> just that eternal curiosity and yeah. wanting to fix things, wanting to get yeah. to the root cause. We don't just want to yeah. put a coat of paint on something. We want to figure out what is really going on and how do we fix that? Yeah. And exactly. yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned that five years later, you realized the things that got us to here may not get us to the next stage because fraud has changed so much because yep. we're changing so much technology is changing so much and while a lot of other companies and a lot of other verticals saw explosive growth during covid those of you in the ticketing well, and travels did not space, yeah. it was the opposite and totally and it was crazy because payments was a thing then too in honestly more so than fraud there wasn't there yes. weren't sales happening, so there wasn't right. fraud happening for the most part. And But on the payment side, we had to re-engineer our systems to do refunds. <sighs> the systems were all built for taking money in, not for sending yes. large amounts of money out. And so even at every level and even to the CFO level of how is like cash being controlled and how does that work? And we need to get to month end with this. And how do we, how do we balance that out and not if... $10 million in refunds are owed. How do we space that out? Not push that out too far that they're going to turn into chargebacks and just temper that, not get people all upset, overly upset. And yes, it's coming. Okay. Within two weeks, just how to slow that and mm. not just instantly have all the cash gone. Well, and so yeah. it's super interesting to, to do that. And with ticketing, it's interesting because there's always a prior purchaser, right? And so yes. back to the beginning of when that ticket was first sold, but oftentimes when brokers are involved, okay, we can refund that secondary customer, but we need to get our money back from the broker who we already paid for that ticket. Yeah. They need to get their money back from the primary. And so there's this whole chain of events that's happened and not ever having done that at scale and dealing with nobody had dealt with brokers that are we going to get our money back? And so right. that was a whole thing to, again, just trying to slow that process down. Yes, you'll get your money back. We're good. for. It. Hopefully right. the brokers are good for it. We're guaranteeing it regardless. Right. But that was one of the big pieces that, that we had to like, yeah, organize and figure out how to engineer. Yeah. I think a lot of the companies that, you know, are secondary marketplaces in travel, thinking of home sharing and all those different things, they're often, they've already paid out the host mm -hmm. and they've gotten money from the guest and your line, it's the same thing. Yep. And so how are you refunding the guest? But now you have to take that money back from the host and there's a yep. mountain of customer service and communication and yep. also from like the payment side of how do we do that functionally while not yep. blowing up our books and while having a company at the end of this. And at the beginning, I know a lot of shows were just being postponed because we can laugh now, but stop the curve and all those things. Yeah. And you know, oh, well, there's still there are still events that are being the can is being kicked down the road that are still postponed from the early days of COVID. 
there's I still some in that still, bucket. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that's almost four years ago now. Somebody yeah. paid for those probably in 2019. And then, and while the chargeback rules are, I guess if they said, you know, refund was owed and they were able to show that they had last had contact, they could still use the chargeback rules. But at that point, the cards aren't even valid anymore. Right, I know you right. guys got into that too, even a few yep. months or a year afterwards too, is yep. okay, we wanted to refund this card, but it's not valid anymore. So how do we do that from a payments perspective where we can't get a chargeback on the original card? And how do we yep. do that from a payments perspective of paying them back without right. having to write a bunch of checks? And Yep. Yeah, no, there's and so there's all these other compliance and regulation pieces oh, yeah. in play then of like, how do you know that, you know, it's okay to pay this person or what if they're not US based and your payouts are built around US? So yes, there's all kinds of layers there to unpack and the complexities that you don't think about because it's never been needed before. Yeah, even for someone who has, you know, learned payments over the last several years, you don't, you just don't think about that. And that was the case yeah. talking and working with a lot of companies in the travel space during that time was how do we provide store credits but not refunds so we can keep the money but then how do we just all those pieces and having to communicate it up and down the chain because you've got your execs wanting they're just as worried as everyone else and needing to still keep the lights on and pay everyone while still having a brand at the end of it yeah it was I personally think anyone that survived travel and ticketing and all of that, I mean, just survived, but just you know, who went through it has a master's degree in crisis yeah. management because there are yeah, so many things absolutely. you just don't think about. Yeah, it was definitely, I would say the most intense moment of my career was those early days of COVID and just because like, there was so much I, uncertainty, right? They were like 20 yeah. hour days, just back to back and so intense. And it's not knowing what's happening and how long is this going to last? And right. just trying to navigate all of that. It's, it sometimes feels like gaslighting already by ourselves, like thinking back and was it really that? No, <laughs> right. it was a totally different world that we didn't oh. know what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And had we had a crystal ball, that would have been maybe different a little bit, but yeah. Not knowing what was going to come and wanting people and all your customers not knowing what's going to come. They are looking to you for answers and you're like, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, how am I? Yeah. And yeah, I know as soon as those NBA playoff games were canceled, that was when everyone in event yep. ticketing kind of had their oh shit moment. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Never forget that night. Downhill. Yeah. Oh, I know none of you will. I <laughs> And I won't either because my phone was blowing up, but you guys are on the front lines and that's more impactful. Stepping back a minute, there's, I'm, I don't feel like I should be a unicorn in this way. And you are now too. We're some of the fewer people who know both payments and fraud very well and speak yeah. both languages. And I personally, I've said it many times, I cannot imagine knowing what I know or being able to help as many people as I've helped or even do everything operationally that I was able to do back when I was on the front lines without that payments foundation. But yeah. you know, why, like how, why do you think that payments and fraud should go hand in hand and how did you see that over time? Or, or maybe a better question to start with is why did you start getting into payments? Because so many companies in e-commerce, especially, but marketplaces and fintechs, that listen to this podcast, they're in fraud, but they may not yeah. have a payments department or their finance department or their treasury does the function. And they don't yeah. realize just how much could be done better, how much money could be saved, how much money could be made, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, no. And that's exactly where you just went there is exactly what kind of pulled me onto the payment side. Mm -hmm. 
we called it payments and risk. It was like we oversaw the movement of money, but there wasn't really that much task-wise or strategy-wise or anything right. with payments early on. And then for me, we had just gotten in or we were just getting into the primary ticketing space. And so mm. we're for the first time signing clients that we're accepting payments on behalf of or helping build systems for. And that was all still very liquid of what's this going to look like? How are we going to do this? I'm very entrepreneurial minded and I love building things as probably already has been noticed as a theme. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we had just launched with our first major NFL team and we were in the midst of that rollout and the timeline that was needed to go live and start selling their tickets was way shorter than they would be able to negotiate a contract with a payment processor. Ah. I had just been through a six month long RFP process to identify a new payment processor for us to use. And it, once you go through that RFP process, it's still a month or two or three of legal red lines back and forth. Oh yeah. Like just getting to signed MSA so that you can actually start moving money. And so there wasn't time for that piece to happen. And so it was, again, just that like curious and opportunistic, okay, here's the problem. How do we solve it? They're one way or the other, we have to make this happen. And so quickly identifying, hey, we can do this for them. And that will give them time to then figure out who they want to use. And we can hand it off in six months or whatever. Hmm. And so during that time, so we did, and it worked. And so we're now at that point processing payments on behalf of a client and realized, hey, there's margin here. There's yeah. this is actually working really well. And that gave us opportunity to start building a payments team that had expertise and knowledge specific to ticketing. And the best teams and best clients in the world, very rarely it's by accident, more or less, if they have payments people on their team that just happen to know payments. Yes. They're in ticketing and they're working for a team and maybe someone in the finance has worked for Amex or somewhere in the payments industry and knows something, right. but by and large, but they don't know the they're not in payments, of accepting right? payments e-commerce yep. either, which is and, so different. And the nuances that are specific to ticketing. And so yes. we saw realized that, hey, there's an opportunity for us to essentially build a payments product for ticketing that's under our umbrella and we can offer that as a service and there's a margin there and hey wait a minute this is actually a great way of doing things we're benefiting from it we're getting mm. way more volume by doing this and building stronger and better relationships and getting into a totally different realm of a level of payments because here's an extra 150 200 million dollars a year from one client and now two and three and four and all of a sudden there's 10 clients that you're doing this for and hey, there's an extra billion dollars a year in volume. And that takes you to, you have different conversations with payment processors when oh, you're yeah. at $50 million a year in volume versus $2 billion a year in volume, right? So right. everything about that completely changes. And so saw that opportunity and all of a sudden payments are generating revenue and it's not just a cost center, it's a profit center. Mm -hmm. So that's where then all of a sudden I got excited because it gave me the opportunity to like layer in this strategy and vision. And that, that was during the period where I was focused solely on payments. I yeah. let go completely of the fraud side. It still was a knowledge source because I had built those systems and, and obviously was still there, but really was just focused on the payment side. And I guess fast forwarding to your question about the kind of relationship and 
and interaction between fraud and payments. I think there's so many layers of overlap when it comes to the operational side. And we were talking earlier about the auth rate piece. And yeah. that ties directly into fraud and chargebacks that ties obviously directly into fraud. Also, when it comes to non-fraud, it gets into the product side. There's yeah. a number of different operational pieces, but they're really not, they're so closely related that I think you lose a lot of momentum when you pull them, when you don't think about them in the same way and in the same approach. So that yeah. was that basis. And there's obviously plenty of companies that have them separate yeah. and it just requires a very close working relationship between them. It doesn't mean that they have to be on the same team. They should be know. working together. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I'm yeah, surprised sure. at how many times I still talk to companies and sometimes they're very large, but that doesn't mean that they're sophisticated in the fraud and payment space, yeah. whether either because they didn't start out in e-commerce, maybe they're a brand that's been around for 50 or a hundred years and then they had to add e-commerce or because yeah. For lots of reasons, right? But where, oh, our treasury department or our finance department does our chargebacks. Do you at least get the information from those? We get the fraud ones. It's, oh, but there's so many there's things so that much you're there. missing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's such a hand in hand and holistic. And I, yeah. there are so many fraud related questions that I could not answer for people if I didn't have a backwards and forwards understanding yeah. of payments. I just, yeah. I think that's why I get them a lot because a lot of people yeah. don't. Yeah, yeah. So two of the things I wanted to highlight was that for you guys, especially you were in a position where you were able to go from what we call a single merchant or a merchant of record to a payback, mm -hmm. a payment facilitator. And yeah, payment which fees. we didn't fully go payback route. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. You did it more. Was, it was a cool setup that we were merchant of record on behalf of. Oh. And so it's, there are fine lines there. Yep. There's pretty clear, yep. arguably Benefits. clear boundaries to, to stay within. And that was, how wasn't it able to roll out and pretty cool setup and approach to get the best of both worlds. But yeah, essentially. Yeah, and essentially, even knowing that's true. Yeah, essentially, yeah, that's true. And you're more merchant of record and there's difference. And that could be a whole other separate topic of podcast in itself. But again, I tried to, while I want to amplify the importance of fraud and payments working together, I'm always conscious of the fact that it's not everybody's as geeky about payments as you and I are. But just to your point, there are different categories that you can be in. And a merchant yeah. of record on behalf of has different benefits and, and downsides as a yeah. payback, yeah. but different yeah. rules and different things. And just knowing the difference and being able to communicate that upwards to your leadership to yep. say, hey, I've done all the detail and I've here's the differences, here's the, the benefits and the upsides and here's some of the downsides of both. Yep. Here's what I recommend. That's invaluable because otherwise yep. you're relying on your payment processor to tell you and they often are going to have their own reasons for why they're going to want to steer you in one direction or another that yeah, may not totally. benefit your company as much as... You know, yeah, and it's it interesting too, especially coming in from the very like forward thinking tech side and realizing the risk tolerances that different payment processors have. Huh. And naturally, finance in the fintech world is going to be risk averse, but even within that, some are more willing to take this like we roll with it and we build it as we go. And others are trying to do that and say they do that. And then you get into it and you're like, yeah, not really, because at the end of the day, you're going to shut this down because your risk team says, no, we're not going to experiment with this. And so just trying to play that. And when you're very tightly coupled with one processor, 
and you learn those things on the fly, you get into some tight spots and there's, yeah, definitely some pros and cons there. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score. Or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. I am, yes, instantly reminded of a phone call I got from a marketplace that had all different types of people underneath the people that they pay, process payments for. And one or two of them had nudity as part of their their model. And yep. in some cases, it was very tasteful, right? Like it, if there's such thing, but there, it wasn't yeah. sexualized nudity or whatever. And right. Right. having to hear from <laughs> their payment processor that had a different sponsor bank and that sponsor bank was in the news a lot for a lot of other things. And so they were starting to crack down on not just who was underneath them, but who was under under, like three, four layers below them. Yeah. And because you have this one sub merchant that might have something that might seem unsavory four levels up, all of a sudden they're like, eh, we're going to cancel. That can put you in a very tight spot if you don't have redundancies or if you don't know those things ahead of time. And they're things that, you know, it, I always quote Maya Angelou when she says like, when you know better, you do better. And I'm like, oh, but if you don't, if you don't know better, you don't know that you need to do better. So, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And there's so many things like that as companies are expanding, as they're changing business models, like you guys did from secondary to primary. And I'd imagine that even on the secondary side, you saw so much benefit in understanding payments and the fee structures and 
all of those different things and knowing and realizing, oh, a payment processor isn't the same as another payment processor. It's the same as in fraud. They all have, you need to go down the checklist of how do they do this? How do they do that? Et cetera. And actually, as we're talking, I'm starting to formulate what I'm going to dive in deeper on Thursday's episode as far as that. And also I've had multiple conversations recently with companies that have been using their payment processors risk platform and how just some things that you might want to consider in doing that. And that's not to say that those things are necessarily bad, but when a company gets to a certain size, oftentimes companies solution providers are adding extra products and services to open up different lines of revenue from themselves. It's not always with the end user in mind. Yeah, no. And I think that's a great point and a great callback to why the synergy, I hate that word. I don't know why I just used it, but why the synergy between fraud (laughs) and payments is so important, right? But as you're scaling, if you've been using your payment providers tooling and you know, who's going to be the one making that call of, you know right. what, our cost of payments is too high. We're going to look at using a different payment processor. There's so many intertwined pieces. If it hasn't been thought about an approach from a strategic point in the beginning and often startups, you're not thinking about that future. No. What happens right. if, you know, you have to focus on the here and now. And so again, that kind of like detail work and then zoom out and then zoom back in, back and forth. And so just, yeah, those close intertwined relationships and how do we start thinking about a multi-processor approach or if our payment processor finds something that they're not happy with and shuts us down, what do we do then? Where do we go? And if our fraud platform is also there, how do I totally retrain my fraud team on different tooling? Not even to mention the resources that are needed to incorporate something different and how do we choose something different um, yeah. Or the cost basis difference of we've been doing this ourselves and our only option is to outsource fully, go to one of the chargebacks or the risk platforms that's fully insured more or less. Right. You know, yeah. that is sometimes a great solution, but the yeah. cost difference can be pretty massive. Or even Abs- yeah. maybe at the end of the day, the cost isn't that different, but it's allocated differently. Your right. cost of chargebacks is different than what you're paying your payment process. All of those pieces is different than what you're paying your fraud platform. And so those are all coming out of different budgets and handled differently. And all of a sudden, if that's all rolled into one, what does that look like? How do you treat that? But there's a lot of those moving pieces that are very intertwined. Yeah. And they're often not considered, right? Because it's, and that's something that's always blown my mind is the lifeblood of an online company is payments. They yeah. have to get their payments in and sometimes payments out. But yet oftentimes it's assumed that they're all the same. There's not those tiny decisions that as you're growing can mean millions of dollars and bigger margins. Had you guys not had your first primary client being in a situation where, oh, if we move from this other primary provider, we're not going to have a payment provider anymore or payment processor and we can't do it this fast. Yep. Who knows your growth would have been it would have stunting. completely changed everything for the trajectory yeah. of the company without a doubt yeah and i see that a lot and i do think that's yeah. something that those of us with fraud knowledge we are so good at being able to know cause and effect for the future as well as backwards we're able to yeah. go back and figure out the root cause but also know okay i understand the difference between this and this how's that going to play out in a year or two how's that going to yeah. end to your point if you're only looking at the here and now you're going to miss so much opportunity because those yeah. margins and those pennies add up real fast they There's really, a, they really you know, do yep Yeah, there's a reason why more providers are trying to loop in payments and fraud within themselves. 
And they know that you know, it's nicer to send one check than two. But then again, to your point, they're allocated differently and everything else. But yeah, it's just, it's not, I think all we're saying at this point is it's not as simple. And I think the one other thing I want to say before diving into some of the, I don't know, more fun parts of just the nuances of ticketing is the career trajectory of learning payments also yeah. adds a whole thing. And that's something that I often will recommend to people if they feel like they've gotten fraud to a pretty good spot in their company. And they're like, oh, what else can I learn or what else can I do? Should I go to cybersecurity? And I'm like, there's payments. Just start digging yeah. around and yeah. start asking questions and start looking at your statement and doing those things. And if you're not getting the support you need from your payment processor, maybe it's worth it to hire a consultant that speaks both languages and can translate that for you. That's not a plug for myself. It's just a, yeah, can be very valuable and being able to show your company, Hey, there's some possible upside here. I think I've sold the story before, but my very first consulting client, when I went, when I opened my consultancy, the second time I had a consulting client, like earlier prior to like when I was still working full time and all that stuff, some of us do those things, but my very first one, it was really a chargeback and fraud project, but I had to look at their merchant statement to understand their incoming chargebacks and things like that. And I was like, whoa, you guys are paying three times as much as I happen to know that your competitor is paying because yeah. I am very lucky that people tell me things and I just happen yep. to remember it. And it was like, wait, and I wasn't going to tell them who the competitor was or what they're paying, but I was like, whoa. And they said, oh, we haven't, you can negotiate that. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This company yeah. had grown a lot over a few years and they hadn't thought about it. And even though they had re-signed a contract with their current processor, I went back to their processor and I was like, look, like gig is up. You guys know that we can, it would actually be, they would save money if they paid the penalty to break their contract yeah. with you and went to someone else. So let's be reasonable here. But we don't, and my clients, I don't, we don't want to leave. I'm like, I know, just let's, you know. And I saved them, I think it was like $4 million in the first year. Crazy. Just yeah. on their current yeah. contract with their current processor. And that yeah. wasn't even what I was hired to do. And then actually though, unfortunately, I talked to myself out of a job because then they were like, oh, wow. That if you just did that, we need to hire someone full time to manage these things <laughs> yeah. because there's so many yeah. other opportunities. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've done that. And that's a good thing to me as yeah. a consultant, liking to coming in and fixing things and then moving on. But yeah, it just, you don't know what you don't know. And when finance is owning that relationship, they just pay the bill every day and they think it's a utility, yeah. but it's not. And I think that opportunity is part of what drew me to payments in the first place and opened that door from a career standpoint. Yeah. Just looking at the fact that you can absolutely have a long career in fraud and but when it comes to opportunity and growth and kind of the opportunity to make money, not in a career sense, but for the company, right? Yes. In our case. How do we monetize this payment service that we've built? Yeah. Like those were the things that for me sparked in a way that isn't fully existent there to the same degree, just in fraud. But then when you layer the two together and you look at payments and the opportunities that that, that can create, right? Um, the two together, it was like, okay, there's absolutely no ceiling anywhere that you're going to hit with those two pieces. And I think that, you know, you're right. There's a difference between... Save it. We all know, save the company $4 million, but on the bottom line, behind the scenes after the fact, versus even making the company top line revenue 2 million or 3 million, yeah. we know that who's going to be the bigger rock star. Yeah, and so totally. if you're able and being to being able to deploy both of those. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I think 
The other thing I'd just say too is just that international aspect. And we could, that could be a whole other long conversation. And I had a similar one actually with Holly and Tin Ticketmaster a few months ago, just about how much they saw just their two teams working together where they hadn't historically, those two teams hadn't before. And just how much they were able to learn from each other, as well as create this holistic strategy that hand in hand, because especially going international, there's so many different, most countries don't rely on credit cards the way the U.S. does. But you need to understand, okay, this payment option might be cheaper and it might have other benefits, but there's no chargeback system or what there is. And it's this way or all those different things. And just, again, just relying on your provider. It's not the... Every provider is bad, but they're who's paying their paycheck, right? Yep. They'll want to help you. I've been on that side. I worked for the payment processor. You can be very loyal to your client while also being like, hey, I also know that I have to sell this product or have to give this advice this way or things like that. Yep. Having an advocate for your company is very beneficial. And clearly we're, we're biased, but I have seen people who are very fraud focused like you who started getting curious about payments and started to dive in and look at things. And all of a sudden they're having different types of conversations with their leadership. And it can also help bring more exposure and more, oh, okay, I see more opportunity here, more leadership opportunities or things like that and growth opportunities, both within your company as well as outside, right? Because you've now left SeatGeek with two new, like new to you, new from seven years ago. Yep skills that are very desirable and very important and yep. that you may not have had otherwise. Yep. Yes, absolutely. I never would have never would have imagined that this is where my that kind of like curious operational mindset would have led and I wouldn't have it any other way. It's it's been awesome. So yes, I totally agree. I think yeah, I think all of us in fraud would say that in some way, but I feel just adding those layers makes yep. us have a a bigger when you're zooming out, you're able to zoom out even further than you could before. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I'm actually going to pause recording really fast because I want to have a timeout. Switching gears a little bit, we, as two people who value the importance of payments, talked a little bit more about them than planned to, but I hope that that, I think that was very helpful for other people to hear too, from someone that started out in fraud and just how beneficial it is. But I also wanted to dive into a little bit, the nuances of ticketing. I've had people from StubHub and from Ticketmaster and all that before on the podcast before. Yep. Um, but sometimes when they're working for the, they can't always talk about the details or whatever else, but we've, I think we've danced around it, but it's always good because every person has different perspective on those nuances. Yeah. And I think the difference for you that I find fascinating is that you were both operating a secondary and a primary market. And not a lot of people understand the difference. And I um, already, I already planned to provide that at the beginning in the intro. Now I'm behind the scenes showing that, but so you don't have to get too far in the weeds of that. But what, what for you were some of those nuances, especially as you talk to other merchants and other verticals that you're like, oh, you didn't have to think about (laughs) that, the venue or the performer or the, what's the timeline between the sale and the event, whether it's primary or secondary and all those things that I know you have to think about. Yeah, no, it's super fascinating. And being in a spot that we had started just in secondary and then added in the primary roughly halfway through my tenure there, they, from both the payments and the risk side, look very different. And so with primary ticketing, you are the original source of the ticket. And if 
let's say for whatever reason that needs to be rolled back and reissued, you have the opportunity to do that. Right. If you're only in secondary, typically you don't have the opportunity to do that. Only the primary ticketer does. So it, we you were don't know the originally, inventory, right? Like you don't right. know so, if there's another yes. one or not, or yeah, you don't yep, know. Exactly. That. And so there was no, and historically also tickets were based on PDFs, which yeah. were static. And so once they're out there, especially in the secondary market, it could be sold in two or three or five different places and nobody's talking to each other and nobody knows mm. that until that customer gets to the gate. And so having to build systems to accommodate that and have to make sure that your customer support is such a like key part of that because if your goal as a company is getting people in to see this live event with their family, with their friends, those are incredibly important moments you mm. don't want to screw that up, right? And so in those moments, things do go wrong. Even when you're primary, things go wrong and you've got to make it right. And you've got to still care about the bottom line being getting that customer into the event. And so there's all there's a number of different layers there, but getting into the primary space, some of the changes that, that you see, you know, when things go on sale, you're often with a big on sale, you're sold out within seconds or minutes, right? Very rarely does fraud happen at that point. You're a long way out from the event. It's primarily brokers and customers that are trying to get those tickets. And, you know, they're not at that point, they're not using stolen credit cards to buy those tickets because there's such a long lead time. You're going to get those chargebacks. You can, depending on what your systems look like and how you handle them, you can refund, you can cancel, whatever. You can reissue that barcode, you can resell it. You have lots mm -hmm. of opportunity. So it's not very profitable for a fraudster at that point of on sale. Versus secondary, everything is about the last three yeah. days before an event. And that's when obviously stolen credit cards are heavily used because nobody's going to find out about it before the event or very unlikely to. And a lot of behavioral differences there. But probably the biggest thing that I would say that, again, is that zoom in, zoom out thing is... Mm -hmm. The demographics of every on sale are so different. If <laughs> Luke Bryan is going on sale tomorrow, the demographic of people and the age group and the just the even for companies that are like big into the behavioral data and using yeah. that in the fraud layer, which is great and I think is valuable. That looks very different than the BTS on sale that was last week or when it's teenagers using parents' credit cards for oh, an yeah. on sale. They're, my kid's behavior on, is going to look totally different, even if they're using my account. You know, like yeah. there's all these different pieces. Yeah. So at the, at the time of on sale, you're dealing with brokers that look like fraudsters, but very rarely is there actual stolen credit cards being used. But one of the interesting things that that we've seen was that there are brokers that are using essentially call centers to buy tickets. So there's, mm. it's still, yeah. And it's this weird identity thing that you've got to, you've got to deal with and it's really policy violation. And so right. the States that have very strict bot laws, the brokers know that, and they're making sure that they're not breaking any laws. They're going to push lines as hard as they can, but they'll stay within the bounds because, you know, they don't want to go to jail. They don't want to get in trouble. And so what we've seen is the same thing that you hear a ton of tech companies are using offshore call centers and quickly building their teams by having agents outside of their normal kind of perimeter of their company that are yeah. helping them. Mm. Brokers are doing that too, right? And you can have a hundred credit cards issued 
through a ton of platforms that are out there and you can give everyone their own credit card and hey, get in line at this time. And all of a sudden you've got 200 agents that are working for you for an hour today and they're waiting in that line and going to buy those tickets. And it's a person behind it using a credit card. They're not sharing cards. They're on their own computer. It's all of that. They're not the one that's going to attend the show. And so that's where there's policy and there's some nuances there. But the primary legal is happening. Right. It's another customer maybe is actually even a fan. Obviously, those are blurry lines, but that's what's happening. Right. And so Mm. even more, how do you combat that? Um, And what does that look like? And there's a lot of layers there. Um, yeah. But yes, those on sale points and the demographics looking so different across the board. It can look like fraud so easy, especially if your model is more trained. And I would imagine it also has to do with volume, right? If primarily your your platform is selling sports tickets or Kenny G tickets, there's a, I can, I, I really, there, yep. yeah, there's a story I heard, a few stories I heard about Kenny G fraud that always makes me laugh mm-hmm. more on the resale side because fraudsters want to sell the things that they're going to get the most money off and of and sometimes baby boomers might have a lot of extra money and so they're willing to pay five or ten times as much for a ticket to something that they want to see versus teenagers trying to buy something secondary yeah and we're oscillating back and forth between primary and secondary because that's what you had to do in your life right there's absolutely and that's that definitely was one of the interesting challenges because incumbents in that industry there was obviously the big primary ticketing behemoth mm-hmm. and there was a big secondary ticketing behemoth and there wasn't really it's it started to you know the big primary has since in the last couple of years gotten more into secondary but we were really the first to pull the two together right. in a pretty big way that was actually a strong competitor to either of those and you had to learn and, those all the hard and, and you're dealing yeah. with all of it in concert with each other right yes <laughs> so to your point yes it's all mixed together and you've got fan to fan mixed in there as well and a lot of that was learned early on because like mm. i said that was when i first got into it right and early on dealt with the collusion and people buying their own tickets and using stolen there's all different layers there ah. you used to have paid transfers where it's oh yeah why wouldn't you you bought three tickets and want to send two to your friends and have them pay you $20 each ticket through the app. There's ways to exploit that. All of that. Mm -hmm. Thankfully that was deprecated a while back, but that, that came out before Venmo and cash app were really things to be able to easily send money to friends. Right. And so it was, you know, played a early on very crucial piece to that transfer P transfer play. But again, yes, those things evolve over time. Anyway, the primary and secondary interplay is really interesting each brings its own set of challenges. And again, yes, you've got a heavy amount of brokers playing on the primary side. Mm-hmm. You've got a heavy amount of fraudsters playing on the secondary side. They both do the same things. And it's you don't do hear the from the fraudsters claiming that they're fraudsters, their... but you do hear from the brokers claiming that the brokers, right? And so right. you get yeah. these weird interplays where it's, wait, we thought that was fraud. But it's actually, we know we can trace it back and figure out, oh, that's who that broker is. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you can start to unweave the patterns. But also that's where then in probably another episode can be more about the tooling, but machine learning play a really helpful role, but also 
it's a challenging thing to use in these places because that's where I was of going. those yep. layers. And, because and one there's of the nuances, things, right? Yeah. If your model is always looking at, okay, we see this behavior, this is fraud, but yep. then you have a BTS. And also another thing is too, it's not just about the artist. It's also about the location, right? So oh, something at Madison's or Garden or... There's specific venues that are very much bigger targets. Yes. Um, Because fraud and brokers go where the the masses want to go most. And I think a lot of people, a lot of fans that love concerts have a bucket list of where they get Mm -hmm. to see them. Am I very excited because my husband got selected, selected to be able to pay to get (laughs) tickets to U2 in the sphere at in Vegas uh-huh, in October. Uh-huh. Heck yeah. But have I also That's thought in the back of my head, I might want to see, we might want to see how much those tickets are going to be on the secondary market before we go down to Vegas. And But there's yep. a lot of, yeah, to your point, right? Just using that example, at the on sale, there were a lot of brokers wanting those too. And that's a complicated thing for every primary company. And that's something that I don't want to get get anyway. But I do know that, like you said, it's a policy decision. And it's wanting to have the end users and the fans have the most opportunity to buy primary tickets. While yeah, also totally. understanding that there's a whole other business there and that and not wanting to exclude them either, but limit uh-huh. and understand the behavior so that you can control it. It's yep. similar. I often say that sneakers and tickets are very similar, right? Yeah. If, if you're selling the latest Jordans or what used to be Yeezys or whatever the new sneaker is on yep. the primary side, you want to limit four or five of those to resellers so that you're not, yep. because it's a brand issue. Oh, I'm yeah. not even no. bothered to buy from that company. And that's yeah. a great parallel with the sneakers, right? Because when yep. you're releasing a new sneak, when you're releasing a new sneaker or you have a performer at a venue that just is not going to sell well, yeah. you you don't want to have an underperforming. And that's where brokers feel Brokers that. come in and they'll, handy. They'll right. buy those tickets. And a broker wins on volume. And they know that there's going to be shows that they lose money on. That has to be counteracted by the shows that they make money on. Same right. thing with the shoes where it's going to suck for Nike if this shoe doesn't sell well and it's been hyped and they've got yep. all this marketing money into it if consumers right. but brokers so you have resellers can, that can fill resellers that and in that case allow them to yep. say oh we sold out exactly. in 30 minutes even if exactly. legitimate customers and were it, like it creates Meh. it helps the them sell the shoes yep. helps the performers sell their tickets and levels that playing field and let's ultimately is still beneficial to the consumer at the end of the day because their artists are still touring and they're still selling. That's true. And right. the same way mm-hmm. that you have those early on sales, not everybody is excited to buy a ticket for a show in a year and a half. Or they able will be to financially. Or two months before that show. The performer isn't going to be able to play that venue if they don't sell the tickets. You know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces there. It's, it's um, so complicated, right? Yeah. And I know that there are several people that have either formerly or currently work in event ticketing, either in the primary and or secondary, who yeah. want to be able to say those things to Congress or things like that in a way that maybe yeah. hasn't been able to be explained. But I think that that's opening up a whole big can of worms. But I think it's not that primary ticketing or even those primary sneaker sellers have created want these brokers or resellers, but it's a product of the market. It's a product of having 
third or two sided marketplaces available online and tech ever since we saw eBay, Beanie Babies, right? The whole thing, right? Like, yeah, ever since that, it's oh, I can make money reselling things. Yep. And every company, whether they're in luxury or not, has to make a decision of, you know, what do we do with resellers? And it's a challenging thing and it's a business decision. And oftentimes fraud is brought in on it because we're looking at the time of purchase and we're seeing behaviors and devices and different information, like you said, where you can tell the difference between a broker and a fraudster and a kid using a parent's card. Now, is it, can your system always automatically tell that? That's why you have layers in your tech, in your risk stack to be able to filter those out because those are the things that look, can look very similar. And those are the types of things that I have definitely seen companies relying on technology from 10 years ago, not being able to identify it all. And that, that's where the margins are. And that's where, again, and we, I mentioned it a bit ago, but The machine learning piece, I think, is incredibly powerful and helpful, but it's also, it creates problems. And especially when you have a changing, a demographic that changes literally every day, machine learning has, it has to learn what is good and what is bad. And if it changes overnight and tomorrow your purchasing behavior is totally different than yesterday, it doesn't know what to do with that. And it's either going to all be good. It's all going to be bad. It's just going to be all over the place in a mix of that. And so how I would say for those that have a focus on machine learning and you're seeing changes, really take the opportunity to look at how you can reduce that feedback cycle. How are you Hmm. training? How are you training that model? So in our case, so much of it used to be predicated on that fraud chargeback event. That's what... In most cases, that's what Mm. is ultimately the best guidance for training your fraud models. It's a feedback. The problem is if I'm getting my chargeback in 60 days, 56 Mm -hmm. days, whatever that median is or that that point is, is, by then the patterns that the fraudsters are using have completely changed Mm -hmm. so many times that who cares at that point, right? Because their tactics have changed. The demographics and the buying patterns have changed in the meantime that it almost isn't really actually helpful. No. And so how we took that opportunity to like, how do we zoom in? And I want to train today. I want to train mm. my model today with what's happening today. And how do you make those kinds of shifts? There's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of companies out there that that pattern at 56 days is still the same. And yeah, because they sell the same things to the same groups and of it's, people. It's the and same their patterns. Have the same and you, is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've got a mix of whatever. But in, in those quickly changing environments, you really need to figure out a way to get in and reduce those feedback loops as much as you can to be able right. to identify good and bad right now. And it's honestly, it's as much about the good as it is about the bad. You're yeah. wanting to stop the bad, but if you're stopping too much thinking it's bad, the amount of money that you're losing the company is far greater than what you're going to be losing in fraud losses if you were to let it all through. And that's so. why I, yeah, that's why I often say that travel and ticketing, people that have been in fraud and payments for travel and ticketing often have, they have to be some of the fastest thinking and adaptive. Mm-hmm. And because A, a lot of times the newer 
fraud technologies hit you guys because there's such a high margin for the fraudster. Yeah. Obviously, it's all margin for them because it's not their money, but so much more upside, right? The value increases so much more in travel or in ticketing, but especially yeah. in event ticketing or yeah. theme parks as well. And the value can go up so much from when they bought it, but also it's a it's a timing game. It's other things, but triangulation and account takeover, those were yeah. two things that the ticketing side, um, as well as online gaming for ATO, saw before yeah. any other vertical. And there's other things as well that I can't yet... Yeah, there's a couple other schemes that in doing some behind the scenes research, realizing, oh, this vertical thought this was new for them. But no, just because of something yep. random that someone said in ticketing to me like a year ago, I'm like, wait a second, I think those are the same. And just last yep. week, I introduced a ticketing company and two retailers going, I think you get and ticketing has figured this out. So you guys need to go talk. There's so much yep. there that you guys are on the forefront that I think is very much underestimated and not understood. And to your point, and I think it's a good place to, to end this conversation anyway, clearly you and I, we've already established this on other phone calls. We can talk for days on these things or at least multiple hours because we love to geek out. But I think that especially in ticketing, one of the bigger things that's important is how risky good orders can be and how risky good orders can look and how all, you know, using all rule sets or all machine learning can loop those up more, right? Can confuse yep. those more. So it's important to yep. have different layers and having, yep. and also not all machine learning is created equal, right? There are some that Absolutely you might true. have your own yep. model for your own company. There are some companies or solutions that work with so many different types of companies that it's fine for them to adjust it. And it's also on how they label transactions, right? Are they labeling it correctly so they yeah. can identify a bad bunny concert behavior from a BTS from a Kenny Chesney, right? And are they doing that in similar ways with other verticals so that they can learn together? And those are being looped in, not just the vertical itself or the merchant yep. itself. So that's why yep. behind, it's not Expanding just, oh, do you have this? Yep. Right. It's what are the details and what are those going to look like? And how is that going to impact my business? Yep. And more than ever, yes, fraud is important, especially in, especially in secondary chargebacks and everything else. But at the end of the day, being able to identify those good orders that could have looked risky, that's where the margins are. That's where the, the company gets to expand. And that's where you're yep. going to be the superhero. Yeah. No, there's guarantee at any sizable retailer, there are tens of millions of dollars being missed in good orders. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I would highlight an exclamation point that sentence yeah. times 10. See it yeah. quite often. Sean, I just enjoy talking with you, obviously. And thank you so much for spending some time talking about your career, as well as some of the lessons you learned and experiences yeah. and the nuances and all that. I mentioned that you aren't, you're taking a little bit of an intentional break, which I think everyone needs to do at some point. And for me, it was right around the seven year mark as well. Not for one company, but just in front of, especially when you're building building and you just need a little bit of break. But what what are you looking to do? I will obviously put your LinkedIn in the link to your LinkedIn in the show notes for people to connect with you either for now or later. You're just a great resource of information and good person to know. Thanks. Yeah. But what are you looking to do in the near future? Yeah. Like you said, taking a bit of a break, working on some personal projects for a bit. I've got a couple consulting things in the works. Mm -hmm. So a bit of that and exploring couple new projects, maybe building something related to the fraud and payment space, technically. Also, yeah, 
I have a background in events and exploring what that could look like. So yeah, I don't know, TBD on that, but taking some time and still staying in touch with the space as much as I can. So yeah, this is great. Yeah. Those of us that love fraud and are curious and everything else, we really can't take a break for long. I think you've yep. only been technically fun employed in question in quotation marks for a couple of weeks. And I think it was after week two that you were like, okay, I'm getting antsy. I'm like, yep, yep. that's yep. about the time. Yeah. No, <laughs> and it was funny because at MRC this year, that was for yeah. me. No, I don't want to, I don't, I knew I was leaving, but right. I thought maybe I was going to get out of the space completely. And I was like, I enjoy the people. I enjoy the community. I enjoy the work and I enjoy this too much to get away from it. Still going to do something connected to that. So we'll see, see where things go. I am excited to see where that goes too. And thanks again. And as I have told you offline, I'll tell you now too, you are welcome back on Fraudology anytime. And I look forward to seeing what you build and create in the future. I'm excited for that. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Carissa. Appreciate it. Thank you again to Spec for sponsoring today's episode. I'm really excited for more online companies to see what's possible with their fraud infrastructure. Spec's Trust Cloud is way more than just another fraud product, and I hope you'll visit www.specprotected. That's s p e c p r o t e c t e d. dot com to learn why.